in, influence and leadership are intertwined. And so I think it's wise for us to, when we're looking at the scriptures, to kind of pay attention when this idea of leadership comes up. Because we will all have influence over other people as time moves on. And a lot of you in this room, your influence and your ability to lead will only grow moving forward. If you just look at the life of Jesus, and this is inside the church and outside the church, if you just look at the person of Jesus, he's considered one of the greatest leaders the world has ever seen. Just in the way he, he, uh, he treated people and he acted these three years that he did ministry on earth. So I think what we're talking about today, I believe what we're talking about today applies to all of us in this room. So hang with me as we dig into scripture and see what it says about really being a servant Leaders, more specifically, uh, what is a deacon? Now, deacons. Uh, most theologians think that the Bible introduces deacons for the first time in Acts 6. So this is, listen to Acts 6. This is early, early on in the church. Okay, Acts 6, 1 through 7. It says this, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, these were non-Jewish people, arose against the Hebrews, God's people, the Jews, because their widows, the Hellenist widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution. So they, they weren't having their needs met, and this was an obvious thing the church was responsible for. And the twelve, these were twelve disciples, summoned a full number of the disciples, brought all of them around and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And what that just means, they were, their, their time was becoming divided. They felt like their primary role was the ministry of the word, the teaching of the word, to raise up leaders, to make disciples, these kinds of things. And they kept getting pulled because there were all these needs coming up outside of the church and inside the church. So he says this, therefore, they do. Brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. <clears throat> And, that, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, and proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So I mentioned earlier that the word deacon literally means servant, uh, meaning that when this word, this, this word is used in, in the scripture, it can really mean either uh, talking about someone who is a servant, this, this person is a servant, or it can mean um, the actual office of the church. And so we just need to know when we say deacon, most of us think um, role in the church, somebody in the church, but it's actually the meaning of the word just means servant. So deacon means servant. Deacons are servants. And if, if all of us are influencers and, and, and going to be leaders to some degree, like the point I made earlier, then we should be really clear on what this means. Like what does it mean to make, be a biblical servant? What does it look like to be a servant leader? And Jesus teaches on this probably a lot more than you think. Um, there's this one instance, this one circumstance that happened that Jesus does a great job teaching on this, and it's in Mark chapter 10, <clears throat> starting verse 35. The, the, the verses will be up on the screens. Now, this, ha this, this happens because um, James and John are going to ask a question. So I want ourselves, I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of James and John. Okay, so put, put yourself in their shoes, and what we're going to see is what 
gets in the way of us being servants. Okay? We should all be wondering, hey, why, why is it hard to be a servant all the time? Or when you hear the calling of God that you should be servants, what makes you nervous? What creates anxiety about that? I think we're going to see some answers in this passage. So let's walk through this. Mark 10, verse 35. And James and John, the two closest disciples of Jesus, men who loved Jesus, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Oh, okay. So they're coming to Jesus. Uh, they're leader. Uh, they've seen him do miracles. They've seen his power. They actually know he's going to be a king. Now they're off on what that kingship's going to look like, but they still know this guy's powerful. This guy's going to be a king. And they say, hey, we want you to do whatever we ask you to do. That is bold. That is arrogant. What it sounds is it's just crazy. And Jesus entertains it. And John kind of goes with it. Verse 36. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Like, take your shot. What is it? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand. In glory. Okay, so what they're imagining here is Jesus setting up his earthly kingdom as a king would do, maybe some kind of gold chair that sits real high so the king can look down on everybody. And what he want, what they want are these, these two chairs next to Jesus, maybe silver or gold. They're just a, just a little bit lower than Jesus, but high enough where they can kind of look down on everyone else and, and have some control, have some authority, have some power alongside of Jesus. This is ultimately what they are asking for. They're power-hungry. This is arrogant. This is presumptuous. And it sounds very similar to Genesis 3. Remember the serpent's temptation on Eve. You'll be like God. You'll be able to know good from evil. You'll be able to call the shots. You'll be able to get whatever you want. All your desires will be met because you'll be like God. And this was Genesis 3. Like, this is the fall. This is the root of all sin. We see it here with James and John. Let's listen to verse 38. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. Now, Jesus is not talking about literally drinking. and He's already been baptized. So what he's talking about is the way he's going to suffer and die. Or do you want to drink the cup of this suffering? Do you really want to go there? Do you really want to be baptized in the sense of being buried? Like dead and then buried in a tomb. Jesus is saying, this is where this thing's headed. And they're like, yeah, sure. We'll go there with you. And he actually says, hey, well, what, it's coming for you. And we know that James, you see the book about James is martyred. And then we know that John spends uh, the, the last years of his life exiled on an island after already been beaten, uh, persecuted, tortured. They send him off to an island to die a lonely death by himself. So Jesus is like, okay, you want it, it's coming, Okay. But, and then listen to verse 40, 40, 41. This is interesting. And when the ten heard it, so the other ten are around listening to all this, they begin to be indignant at James and John. They are mad. 
So don't let these guys off the hook. They're mad at James and John because they found a way to weasel their in in these two prominent positions in their life. They're, they're as jealous, they're as power-hungry as these two guys are. They just weren't as bold and maybe creative enough. And they got to jump on them and asking Jesus for these two roles. So all the disciples are wrestling with this power-hungry mentality. Well, verse 42 says that Jesus called him to him and said to him, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve. So even someone as powerful as me, the Son of God, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Like imagine this scenario, Jesus is a coach here, and he calls them all in. Come on, Matt. We, 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 this is a teaching moment. Time. Come on in. We're going to talk about this, because this has to be correct. So he calls them in, calls them in, and he wants to correct them. Like his attitude and mindset cannot happen. And he begins by pointing to the, the culture around them and kind of saying, you know it, the Gentiles, the, the way they handle authority is not the way God would want it. Right? They, get, they either take authority or they're given authority, then they use that authority to, to, have a, to, to, to control people, uh, worst case scenario, to oppress people, to get people to do what they want them to do, to fulfill their own desires. This is the way that it works in the culture. This is what the Gentiles do, Jesus is telling them. This is what that phrase, lording over, means. Lording it over. So he's telling the disciples that their, their, their hearts behind this request are evil. and must be corrected. Their attitude about wanting these special places of authority is, is misguided and off. And he knows that these guys are going to be leaders in the church. When he goes back to the Father, these guys are going to be leading the early church. So he wants to make sure they understand that if he... If they were put in authority right then, then the people that were to come under their authority and the people they were to be leading, it would be oppressive, it would be controlling, and they would, get, they, they would have um, churches full of hurt and broken people led by these men as this, using this attitude. So Jesus wants to correct it. As followers of Jesus, our default way of living should be to put others before ourselves. The consistent question we should be asking is, how is God going to be glorified and honored by this? How is someone else going to be loved and honored by this? That should be our, our primary question that we're always asking. Jesus speaks again to this idea in all four Gospels. Uh, we're going to look at Luke, uh, these two verses in Luke, but these are in all four Gospels. These are, this is a very important teaching of Jesus, obviously. Luke 9, verses 23 and 24, and he says, and he said to all, so this seems like there's, there's a lot more people around when he's saying this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And he said in verse 24. This is, a, this is a kind of a principle, a guiding principle. This is a reality statement for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So what Jesus is saying here is our ability to be servants and glorify God is directly tied to our ability to deny ourselves. 
So our ability to be servants in the kingdom of God is directly tied to our ability to deny ourselves, to die to our flesh and our preferences and our wants and our needs and to put those to death, to deny those and serve God, glorify him. Now you notice that phrase, I mentioned it, but forever who would lose his life, whoever would save his life will lose it. Okay, this isn't a should or an ought. This is Jesus just a statement of reality. It's like a law of the universe, almost Jesus is saying. If you try to save it for yourself, you're ultimately going to lose it. But if you're humble and you're willing to give it away, you're, you're eventually going to be saved. And I don't think he's just talking about salvation. He's obviously talking about that. But I think it moves past salvation and just a, a rule of life, especially in the kingdom of God. Now, how hard is this calling? This is really hard. That Luke 9, 23 and 24, those are some of the hardest verses to read in the scriptures. This is Jesus, our Lord and our King saying, die to yourself, follow me. Take up your cross, this this instrument of death, take up your cross and follow me. This pastor by the name of John Mark Comer um, he's a guy I've been listening to a lot lately and learning from. And he, he says this, um, kind of gives us three ways that he thinks our culture today kind of pushes against our ability to deny ourselves. And this is, this is the same, this has been, these are the same things back in, um, back in Jesus' day, but I think they may be a little, worded a little bit different to help us, okay? So number one, these are kind of the mantras for this day and age for our culture. Number one, nobody or nothing should be able to stand in the way of me getting what I want. I want it, and nobody should be getting in the way of me having it. Number two follows from it. If they or it does, it is a form of oppression. So if I can't live the way I want to live, if I don't get what I want, then I am being oppressed. This is oppressive. Okay. Number three, and this is, I think, the philosophy behind all of this, is if I can't get what I want, I can't be happy. Okay, so the, 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 the equation there, the false equation is, if I get everything I want, I will be happy. And all three of these things are counter to anything you see in the scriptures. They're unbiblical. If you just read these in line with what we just read in Luke 9, they're, they're opposite of each other. And if you're a follower of Jesus in here, you may be saying, well, these three things that you just mentioned, they're not me. I don't walk around saying these things. I don't wear these things on my sleeve. But I think if we were being truly honest, that we all struggle with these things. This is the culture we live in. This is the air we breathe. This is the daily fight for us. That to, 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 to not want things and kind of make sure we get what we want and nobody needs to get in the way of that. I want to live how I live. I want what I want. Don't, don't get in the way of that or you're being oppressive. Why? Because what I want is the ultimate. If I get what I want, then I will be joyful. I will have the ultimate uh, form of happiness. That is not true in the scriptures. And what the Bible calls us, it calls us our flesh. Our flesh is the remnant, as, far as, of Je- as followers of Jesus, the remnant of our old self. Our flesh grabs onto the things the culture offers us. Our flesh can be swayed and moved by new philosophies and ways of living. And it just grabs onto that and it wants it. It wants it because we want what we want now. And we're moved in that direction if we're not careful. 
Now, the way of the scripture, the way of God, the way of Jesus says God knows what we need. God ultimately knows what we need, and he wants us to flourish. He's a good father. He wants us to flourish. But he, know, he good well knows us and knows that if we get everything we want, it will not turn out well for us. This is why that God wants us to listen to him, to obey him, to study the word. And following the way of God equals happiness and joy, not getting everything we want. So Jesus is calling us to die to our desires and follow his example. So God has given us an environment to help us work this out. Because this is hard. This is a lifetime project of learning how to deny ourselves and to follow Jesus and look more like Jesus. It will take the rest of our lives as Christians to to, to even get close to this, and we'll never get there. But God has created an environment for us to do that, and that is called the church. Okay, so digging back into church leadership now, Jesus is the head of Providence Road Church. He's the pastor. Now, don't say that as just some kind of cliche thing to throw out there. The scriptures literally say Jesus is the head of the body, which is the church. So anybody in leadership in the church is functioning under Jesus' authority. I think that's assumed a lot, but we can never forget that, especially those of us who are in leadership. Then you have elders who are pastors and shepherds, whose primary ministry is the ministry of word and prayer. Back at Acts 6, we saw that. But their primary default way of leading is through being servants. Then you have deacons. Deacons primarily lead through serving. Similar to Acts 6, we see a picture of that. Okay? Things outside the church needed to be handled. This need needed to be handled. The deacons were on it. They handled it. They were the type of people who can handle these needs. So God's design is for the elders and deacons to function in such a way that everyone in the church would be built up to look more like Jesus as individuals and as the church. Okay, and this is the environment we learn to work out all of our salvation, especially learning how to be servants. Okay, so we're going to read a passage now. We're going to go through it quickly. This is Paul writing to Timothy, his protege. Timothy was mentored by Paul. Timothy is out planting churches, leading churches. Paul writes this letter to Timothy to tell him, to show him, this is how you set up a church. This is the kind of people you need in the church to help lead it. Okay, So this is 1 Timothy 3, and we're going to start in verse 8. Verses 1 through 7 are actually about elders. We don't have time to get into that, but I encourage you to go back and read it at some point. Because that goes, he goes elders, then he immediately goes into deacons. And as I read this list, I'm going to go quickly, stay with me. All of us should be striving to be people um, that represent the things on this list, because they represented Jesus as well. 1 Timothy 3, starting in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified. Okay, dignified, what does this mean? Um, Dignified is one of those words that it's kind of hard to define when you're trying to define it verbally, but when you're in the presence of someone who's dignified, you can kind of know it. Like, yeah, I recognize that person's dignified, okay? Um, Someone who commands respect, um, that, that, that you're around them, and they're like, yeah, you respect them. Someone who brings a steadiness and a stability to any situation, You can count on them. Um, And again, this is one of those ones that you really only see and can feel when you're around a person. Okay, there's a measure of self-control. Next, 
not double-tongued. And this is kind of exactly the way it sounds. It's someone who says one thing and does another, or even says one thing and believes another thing. So they'll, they'll say two things in two different uh, environments to kind of play both sides of something, okay? So a deacon is not double-tongued. It's a close cousin of gossip, but it's not exactly gossip, or he would have used gossip, okay? But it's a, it's a close cousin of gossip. Deacons should be trustworthy with information because they're um, leaders, okay? Because of their role. Third, not addicted to much wine, okay? Um, wine is the example here. It, this, so it definitely includes wine or alcohol. However, the, the principle underneath this example is temperance, okay? A deacon is to be temperate. And this really means that nothing in creation, nothing that God has created should overwhelm or control this person. So there's nothing that's, that's controlling them from the outside. And if you spend any time around someone, you can maybe tell, yeah, this thing controls them. This is, they're obsessed with this. Like this thing, the, 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 their, their happiness or sadness kind of rises and falls on this one thing, something that God has created. Um, they can enjoy God's gifts in an appropriate way, but they don't turn into God's. They are God's gifts to be enjoyed and not God's to be worshipped and be controlled by. Next, not greedy for dishonest gain. Um, simply, there's a lot of nuance to this, but primarily this means we don't, or deacons don't acquire possessions through unholy means. Okay, money, possessions, stuff through unholy means. Verse 9, they must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. So this is, the li- their life matches their doctrine. Okay, so there's not a teaching requirement necessarily under the deacon. It is under the elder, but not under deacons. But they still have to understand doctrine, and their life has to match that doctrine. The mystery of the faith is the gospel. And so the gospel should change us. There should be actions and obedience rooted in the completed work of Jesus. This is an elder's life. I mean, an elder and, and deacon's life. And it should be all of our aims as well. 10, and let them also be tested first, and they then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So there's a proving time. Okay, there's a time where before that they're actually become deacons, they've proved themselves. Okay, they, they've been watched, they've been, they've been, um, they've been looked at, and they, they're like, yeah, that person um, is blameless. And this really goes for all of these areas um, that we've listed. I probably should have mentioned it at first, but perfection is not the goal in these areas. Blamelessness is. And here's what I mean by blamelessness. If you look at everything in this list and you spent any time around this person, you couldn't say, yeah, this person, that characterizes this person. For example, double tongue. If you spent any time around someone and you wouldn't say, yeah, that's a, that's a person that's double tongue. You wouldn't say that about a deacon. Do we all stretch the truth? Yes. Do we all tell little white lies? Probably. But a deacon's life shouldn't be characterized. But yeah, like I'm not telling that person anything. Because they're double, I, I, don't, I don't trust them. I'm not going to tell them because I know where it's going to get. That cannot be a deacon. So that's what it means to be blameless. It's not perfection, but it's blameless. Um, verse 11, there's a shift here, okay? So um, quickly, I don't have time to dig into this, but 11 starts off with their wives. Now, um, there's a lot of different ways you can translate that word for wives. And some of you in your Bibles, your physical Bibles, will have a little note at the bottom footnote that says, can be translated women, okay? So... The way we translate this, and we've studied this for a couple of years as elders, we believe this should be translated women, not wives. 
And different English translations have a tough time with this because this word could go both ways depending on the context. Okay? So this, this ESV chooses wives. We actually believe it should be women. Okay? So what Paul's doing here probably, this is a hard text to figure out. This is where it gets a little bit muddy. But we think Paul is, everything's listed up to this point as saying this is for male and female deacons. And then verse 11, he switches to female deacons, primarily talking to female deacons. This is the way we think. Now, does this apply to male deacons, these things? Absolutely. But, but for, to throw women in there, he's, he's definitely narrowing this down a little bit, okay? So for deacons who are women, they must be, verse 11, dignified, same as before, not slanderers, and similar to double tongue, similar to gossip, not talking behind people's backs, trustworthy with information, but sober-minded, self-controlled, kind of temperate idea again, faithful in all things, okay? They, they do what they say they're going to do. There's not a flightiness. There's not a kind of a, just a, an, an air of irresponsibility. They do what they're going to say that they, they're, they say they're going to do. Now, 12 kind of shifts back. Paul's may shifting back to the males, male deacons, okay? Because he directly says husbands here, but I think it applies to both once again. Verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. Now, this is another verse, can be translated a lot of different ways, but we think the heart of this verse is basically saying that men, um, men who are deacons should be one woman man. One woman man. One woman men. There you go. Plurals. I'm working on it, grammar. Um, so what this means is, is if uh, 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 you have a male deacon and they're married, this is for married deacons only, uh, that their wife is the only woman for them. So if I was to have access to social media accounts, text messages, email accounts, um, see their schedule, see how they spend time with the opposite sex that is not their wife, then I could say, and I could still say, yeah, he, uh, he only has eyes for his wife. And that, his wife is the only woman in his life, and there's, they're, they're kind of above reproach in that area. Same thing is true for women deacons, I would say, even though maybe Paul's not directly talking about women deacons, I would say the same thing. They are one men kind of women, okay? So they're, 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 they have eyes for only one person. This is specifically just for um, deacons who are married, okay? And the last one, managing their ho- children in their own household well. I think he's talking to men, but I think this applies to women as well. And really, this, is, this one's hard because it's a little subjective. What is managing your whole household? Like, what does that mean? Where do you draw the line between good and bad there? Well, I would just say if I you know, was around somebody and spent time in their home, um, Overall, their home is good. It's well-managed. Are there tough seasons where people just survive and tread water? Absolutely. But you don't consistently walk into their home or peek into their life and say, wow, that's a train wreck. Like, I mean, things are not good in the home. Okay, so if that's the case, then we need to talk a little bit, okay? Because this is a responsibility in the church, and so maybe some time needs to be spent at home before taking this responsibility in the church. Okay, I went fast through that. Oh, verse 13, let me end it. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So there's a promise there for deacons. Now, I went through that list really, really fast. So here's what I'm going to do this week. We're going to post um, uh, a, a same list, but each one of those qualifications will be built out a little bit more, explained a little bit more, and we're going to post a theological paper that we feel like sums up um, kind of the, the view that we see as far as having women deacons. Okay, that's not for every church, and this 
different churches will translate that passage differently as far as women goes. Well, we feel like women can be deacons, and we feel that we've studied enough and, and, and know enough to say that our conviction is that at this point. And so there's a paper, really good paper. I'll uh, link that online as well. I encourage you all um, to check those things out. Now, kind of to, to, to aim towards closing here. Jesus has given us this calling, this challenge. And it is really to de- de- deny, deny self. It's what a follower of Jesus' life is to look like. And Jesus, we know, the Bible says, he humbled, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus became a servant. He became a human, humble act. He became, came to earth, humble act. Died a death, not just died a death, but a torturous death on the cross. He's our example in all of this. He's the one we follow. So how do we do this? What are some two, two practical steps? And maybe, there, maybe it's like a rhythm, but um, I think these are really helpful as I've thought through this and how would I apply this to my life? This is for all of us. Number one, be aware of your desires. Like be aware of your selfishness when your desires are focused inward, okay? We don't, we don't like to do that, okay? We don't wanna really look at those kinds of things, but it's really hard for us to deny ourselves. It's really hard as human beings. If you just think about it, you spend the majority of your day thinking about yourself. Moment by moment, it's either what am I going to do? What, like, what am I thinking? What's going on? What am I going to do this? When am I going to do that? It's really all about you. And some of that's unavoidable. I get it. But I think it's good to be aware of how much of our days are actually focused on us rather, on God, rather than God or other people. Think of, think of this scenario. So this probably happens to me a few days a week. I get home at the end of the day, and I'm tired. Maybe I'm stressed, but I'm for sure tired. All I want to do, my desire, all I want to do for 15 minutes is come in and take my shoes off and sit in a comfy chair for 15 minutes. I don't need TV. I don't need my phone. I just want to, like, sit and do nothing for 15 minutes, okay? That's That's what I would want. Most days when I walk in the door. So most, a lot of the days when I walk in the door, uh, first thing I try to do is, you know, say hi to Nicole, give her a hug and a kiss, say hi to Jax, my three-year-old, give him a big hug, kiss, and talk to him for a few minutes. But I still am thinking, I want to go. I want to go sit down for 15 minutes. That's what I want. And Nicole comes to me, very sweet and kind when she does this. She, she's, obviously, I walk in. She's probably trying to get dinner made. She may be trying to clean the house and get it ready for people coming over tonight. She may be trying to be finishing up her work. She's got a three-year-old that's been after her all day, more than likely. Okay, so that's her world. And I walk in, and all I want is my 15 minutes of rest. Kind of see where this is going. She asked me kindly, hey, can you do these three things for me? It really help me probably take 15 minutes or so. Just, it would really help things move along for the rest of the evening. Now I have a decision to make in this moment, right? So it's a small thing, but it, it's a way for us to, to, to practice this. I have a choice. I can deny myself and say yes to my wife. Um, and even if I say yes to my wife, Nicole, I can, I can say it in a sweet way or I can say it in a way that makes her feel really guilty about asking me to do these things. Oh, yes, I, I guess. I was really hoping to do this, but I guess I'll do this, you know? So I have a choice here, okay? And I think we all have, the, maybe that's not your story, but we all have these choices that play out in a given day for us. Okay, and here are the two, here how, here's how this plays out. Really what I'm asking you to do is to, to audit your desires. 
to look deeply at your desires throughout the day and what's actually going on inside of you. Okay, so when I walk in, I want the 15 minutes of quiet. So if I, take, if I don't deny myself, just give in to that, then I, those 15 minutes will be nice. Like I will get a short-term benefit for that. I'll feel a little bit more rested. I'll get to exhale a little bit. I'll feel pretty good for those 15 minutes. But how am I going to feel an hour later? Probably a little guilty. This, 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 this woman that I committed to serve and laid down my life for, I just like kind of said, no, I'm, I, I take precedent. I know I'm like, okay, like you've been resting all day, babe, but I need to come over here and, and rest a little bit. Like that, that, that could be my attitude. I get my 15 minutes and, and, and it's a good 15 minutes, but in the long run, it's not going to bring me joy. It's not going to bring me pleasure. It's not going to bring me what I really want, but it gave me some short-term benefit. Or on the other hand, I can say yes to those three things she's wanting me to do in a very gentle and, and, and with good motivation. Yeah, babe, I got it. I'll take care of it. Thank you for doing all this other stuff you're doing. Now, those 15 minutes, I'm, it may not be fun. Like, I'm not going to like it. I'll be thinking about the chair for 15 minutes. But an hour later, home will probably be better. I'll probably feel a little bit more joy. A day later, yeah, I'll feel a little bit more joyful. Well, I've become taking a tiny step forward and becoming a person kind of like Jesus that is a, more of a servant than I was earlier in the day? Yeah, I think so. So there's benefits there, but in the short run, I had to deny myself. And here's the thing, we all are chasing joy and pleasure. That's human beings, that's what we're doing. So at the end of the day, it's thinking, what is going to give me lasting pleasure and joy? And taking the denial route and, and tr trading, doing that and having ultimate joy long-term um, or taking the short way, saying, yeah, I want my joy now, but probably not getting what we really want over the long haul. And this is, these are the decisions that we're faced with each day. Now, the second thing. So audit your desires. Second thing, trust the promises of Jesus. Trust the promises of Jesus. Remember, forever who would save his life grab onto it, is eventually going to lose it. But whoever chooses to give their life away will eventually have it saved. And I don't think Jesus is talking about salvation, but I think he's talking about the moment by moment freedom and joy that we can experience as human beings if we're people who actually have our hands open more often and saying yes to helping others and no to ourselves. That There's a promise there on the other side that Jesus says, trust me, not fun in the short term maybe, but in the long-term, blessing, joy, freedom, a person who looks more like Jesus. And this is the gospel, right? Like we're, we're, we're united in Christ in his death and we're united to him in his resurrection as followers of Jesus. Yes, that's a part of our salvation, but that's a daily occurrence, right? We die united to Jesus. Even in me dying to that, that little story, when I died to my, my, my wants there, there was something about this, something happened on the other side that brought more life, that brought more joy, that brought more freedom, right? And this is the gospel. The resurrection is a part of the gospel. It allows us to be people who are servants through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think when we're people who will do this in small things, these things compound over time, and we look back a year from now, and we've become people who look a little bit more like Jesus in the area of serving, we don't wait for these ginormous situations where it's like this flashing red lights, like serve here, serve here, serve. No, like that, obviously those, but 
But I think these tiny little deaths and choosing Jesus and God's way over our way throughout the day make us look more like Jesus. And this death and resurrection idea, it, it, it goes throughout, you think of the four seasons. You have, you, have, you, have, you have things dying, things coming back to life. Every time you eat food, either an animal or a plant has had to die for you to enjoy it. So there's death and there's life. Right? When, in the, 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 as when people are, you're born, and eventually, hopefully when we're all really old, we die. And then we're resurrected again. Okay? There's this hardwired into the DNA of creation, there's this death which brings life. Jesus said it in John. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it can produce no fruit. And I think it's the same way with us as followers of Jesus. So say this to close. This is about trust. Do we trust that on the other side of denial is joy? Do we trust that on the other side of death is life? And do we trust that on the other side of pain, short-term pain, is actually hope because of the gospel? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us all with this calling. can't do this in our own strength. Thank you that you're alive. The the tomb is empty. You're alive. You sent us your spirit. If we're a follower of Jesus, that we know that we've been given the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, who helps us become servants. That this isn't done purely by our own effort. Effort required, yes. But I pray that you would help us. Pray that help us Uh, pay more attention to our desires, the things that get in the way of us being servants. And I pray that we would remember your promises on the other side of death is life. On the other side of denial is joy. On the other side of, of laying down our rights is actual freedom and not the other way around. We don't grab for joy. We don't grab for freedom. We trust that you will give us those things if we will lay down our, die to our preferences. We lay down our lives in small little ways. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us become a people that look like Jesus in this area. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. Shortly before Jesus would go to the cross to die, he took bread and he broke it said, this bread represents my body that would be broken for you. He took a cup and he said, this cup represents my blood that would be shed for you, covering past, present, and future sins for those who have faith in me. Here's what I want us to do. If you're a follower of Jesus in here, I just want you to reflect. Reflect on anything that's been said. Reflect on that Mark 10 passage of Jesus and his disciples in that conversation. Reflect on Luke 9 about dying to yourself daily, taking up your cross daily. What does that look like practically in your life? And, and imagine that. What does that look like the rest of the day? What does that look like tomorrow for you? To honor God by doing that. If you're not a follower of Jesus in here, I encourage you to think about everything we've talked about today. It, are, are you saved? Do you have a relationship with God? What happens when you die? Do you have someone that's leading you? 
Are you governed by self? Are you controlled just by what you want? And there's nothing else besides that that controls everything you do. Is there someone out there that is a good father and a good God that can show you the way that leads to ultimate freedom and joy? If that's you, I pray you would consider God's grace. Consider the offer of his grace. That he lived a life that none of us could possibly lead, a perfect life, died a death that we all deserve to die, taking God's wrath upon himself. Three days later, conquered sin, Satan, and death by coming back from the dead and giving, sending the Holy Spirit to those who would believe in him. If you believe that and want that, please come and take communion today, maybe for the first time. But if that's you and you're not feeling that and you're not ready to kind of to, to, to embrace God's grace, if, you're not, if there's nothing going on inside of you, I encourage you to think during this time and process. But we had just asked that you don't take communion. This is for followers of Jesus only. But if that is you, I'd love to have a conversation with you. I'd love to process this with you. This is really important stuff. And I pray that you wouldn't just kind of let this stuff drift away from your mind, that you would wrestle with it and process it. So take a few minutes. Um, we have stations in the back and stations up front. Um, I guess just one station over here in the back and then two stations up front. So whenever you're ready, come forward or head to the back to take communion.